Welcome to the Rocks Back Pages podcast. My name is Barney Hoskins. I'm here with my colleagues, Mark Pringle. Hello, Barney. And Jasper Murison Bowie. Hello, Barney. Hello, guys. <laughs> nice it's to the, be sitting here with it's you. The power trio. <laughs> it's the power trio. <laughs> we, got yes. a, we got our foot up on monitors and we're playing ugly stratolikes uh, <laughs> called by things like yeah. BC Rich and Ibanez. <laughs> what power trio would we be? Would we, would we be taste? Oh, God. No. Yeah, quite possibly. I'm Would afraid. we be <laughs> oh, Beck, no. Bogart and a PJ? Yes. Okay, yes. all right. So <laughs> please write in and say which one you think I am and which one you think Mark is and which one you think Jasper is. And then we can I'd be like to be Jeff angry. Beck, but I think that's probably Mark's. <laughs> anyway, we will be talking, as ever, about everything that's new on Rock's Back Pages. We'll be talking about this week's featured writer, Phil Symes, and the week's featured audio, which is with the late soul and disco diva Lolita Holloway. Can I pause you there? Actually, we're blue cheer. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ. As in full flow there. <laughs> yeah, it's, OK, blue cheer it is. <laughs> First, we are paying tribute to the late Robert Hunter, the often unsung hero of the Grateful Dead story. Well, he literally he, didn't sing for them, so... He didn't sing. No, uh, he did do his own solo albums. He did record his own, including Tales of the Great Rum Runners. That's right. So he was a performing artist, but he never Not sang or played with the dead. Talking of dead, he died last week, age 78, and... What a great man, actually, well, uh, as unsung heroes go. I think so. I mean, after what has to be said, a shaky start. I mean, first of all, what most people probably don't know is that he is one of Jerry Garcia's oldest friends. They met in their late teens, very early 20s, had a bluegrass band together in around 62. And then they went their sort of separate ways, both very heavily influenced by the very, very powerful beat scene around San Francisco. Then sort of Garcia sort of leered him back to start writing lyrics. And, well, it wasn't a great start. No. I mean, what's great about Dark Star is it's spiralling instrumental improvisation. Not the what, lyrics. What's excruciating yeah. about Dark Star yeah. words, I mean, it's twaddle. Yeah. You know, not to put too fine a Well, it's very on. funny that in, in Ken... The, so we've got three pieces, and yeah. one is part one of a very, very long interview that Ken Hunt did with Robert. That's right. In 1980. And, I mean, one thing... Um, people may not know is that he was he was one of the original sort of what do they call animals that are drug tested I mean guinea like pigs you know for for the acid thing for the CIA for their yeah. what was the name of that program the CIA had whatever God. it was yeah. and that's how LSD infiltrated the West yeah. Coast particularly so he did tons of acid yeah. sort of really before the Grateful we're, Day we're talking about like 63, 64 around exactly yeah. so one of the things he says to Ken Hunt is that people think my work is drug influenced they ought to see some of my drug influenced writing <laughs> they'd know how straight my songs are <laughs> so that kind of I mean, whether Dark Star was written I ha- I under ha- the influence I have no idea I remember the story was they were rehearsing down by the Russian River and he was sat outside and he heard this rotating riff they were playing and started scribbling. But I think Barney and I would, would agree that he really hit his stride with Working Man's Dead, American Beauty, and for me particularly, the previously unrecorded stuff, which is on the Europe 72 album, where he sort of 
channeled mythical America of yes. the, the West and the Southwest. And I mean, some of the songs are riddled with really pretty ghastly misogynist stuff. Yes. You know, we can uh, share we, the women, we can share the wine. Exactly, being mm. the particular line in the mm. case. But actually, some of these lyrics were absolutely fabulous. They helped Garcia find his voice as a singer, I think, really importantly. And for a stretch there, for, from about 1970 to 73, maybe 74, up to Mars Hotel, he and Garcia were writing some of, just some of the best songs to come out of that sort of generation of American musicians. I think Garcia's descent into heroin addiction was really upsetting for Hunter mm. because what happened, and this happens quite a lot with people with heroin, is that they cut themselves off. Yeah. Uh, and instead of being the guy where you'd apparently come up to Garcia's Marin County house and he'd open the door with a banjo or a guitar around his neck and mm. come in and let's, let's write, let's do stuff, suddenly the door was always closed and so on and so forth, you know. I only met Robert Hunter the one time, and it was at a Grateful Dead show yeah. at the Shoreline Amphitheatre yep. because I was going up there to interview the late Bill Graham yep. about the band, and he took me over and introduced me to Robert Hunter, ah. who, was, who was a very, very amusing yeah. fellow. I mean, I didn't talk to him for very long, but I was you know, really thrilled and honoured to meet him. And, of course, I realised, I don't think I knew then. I mean, this would have been about 93. Mm -hmm. Did I know that Garcia was doing heroin? I'm, I don't think I did, but now I realise that Robert would have oh, known. Oh, absolutely. I mean, Garcia slipped into heroin in the very late 70s. It was a powdered... It was Persian. It was called Persian, and... For some reason, they thought it wasn't addictive because mm. like, it wasn't called heroin, even though that's exactly what, what it was. Yeah. And Rock Scully yeah. ended up sharing his house with Garcia, where Garcia would be like nodding out and setting his place on fire because his lit cigarette. Mm. And, so, you know. and it, it's dismal. I mean, I loved the dead up to about 73, 74. Then I started actually actively hating them. And, and in retrospect, it was that the drugs got bad. There was yeah. a lot of cocaine around that band, and certain about her, and Kreutzmann also became a junkie for a stretch and so on and so forth. And it kind of infected the mood of everything they did. I mean, I know there are some later deadheads who would go to every show, would dance in circles around the parking lot and all that sort of thing. But the magic went out of it, and I didn't realise at the time, but I think one of the reasons was that, that from being a band that took a lot of acid, who... Yeah went out of themselves in that sort of way. Yes. Suddenly went into a band who were going into themselves. Shall we put the dead in context? Because um, we're sitting here with Jasper, who uh, <laughs> is, is, is I'm possibly mystified, somewhat mystified I mean, by the appeal of the Grateful I've Dead. I've heard a bunch of their mm. stuff being played, mm -hmm. you know, by both of you. You can't really work at Rock's Back Pages without, without hearing a bunch hearing of the Grateful Dead. dead. But, and it's not that, not that I dislike it. Yeah. And certainly some of the Europe live album, yeah. there's pretty interesting stuff in terms of extended musical yes. extemporization yeah. and that sort of thing. So there is interest in it from that sense. I guess I don't have the context for it just by sure. not having been there at the but time. Of I think course, it, of in some senses it is one of those had-to-be-there bands I, in order I, I, to I, really I think that's absolutely right. get it. I don't I, know. I think what's interesting about them is that they were actually, they, they were almost like two bands. They were the bands that did the long, drawn-out improvisations, and then there was this very song 
Western, slightly countryish, slightly focused sort of base. They're a key stuff. part of the sort. Of, they're one of the building blocks of Americana. Yes. I would say not quite as much as the band. The band were very different, and the band were the group that I really mm. fell in love with. But those two albums yeah. in particular are real plinths in this story, aren't they? I mean, America, uh, Working Man's Dead, nineteen seventy, yeah. and American Beauty, nineteen seventy one. And they are. I do think they're really magical yeah. records. I bought Live Dead when it came out in nineteen seventy and just loved it. Yes, uh, that, that whole Dark Star. Um, Stephen the Eleven in to turn on your love light. Basically, it's in one continuous. It's track. acid rock. It's, it's, uh, it's finest, absolutely really. I, I subsequently bought the box set of every note they played over the four nights at the Fillmore West when that Dark Star was recorded. And there's some stuff on that which is just sensational. I think that's probably a separate podcast. I think it? that is a separate <laughs> yeah, Dark Star. Yeah, yeah. yeah no. Mark's but, got a playlist of like 30 versions of Dark Star, <laughs> which I have been subjected. Only 30. <laughs> um, what's interesting is that Miles Davis, who had the, the humiliating experience having support bands like The Grateful Dead around 1970 at the yeah. film, so they were the only band he liked, and he really praised them in his, his autobiography. Mm. Uh, for Miles to praise anyone is kind of really yeah, something. something yeah, and sure. apparently whenever they played, uh, the dead were mortified to be, be headlining of him, but whenever they played, he and Garcia would go off and find a corner and sit down and talk about music. And, you know, and I think if someone like Miles likes the dead, then I think we all should like the dead. <laughs> I think that's absolutely fair. I think what, I mean, for anyone listening who doesn't know about the kind of cult of the Grateful mm-hmm. Dead, I suppose from my perspective, they were just at that point when I was being told or encouraged to change my musical tastes, mm-hmm. you know. So it was this, this transition age 13, 14 from Mark Boland to you know, West Coast yeah, yeah, yeah. bands, like country rock. That was what was sort of cool mm-hmm. among the older boys at my school. And I very quickly understood that the Grateful Dead were, they were sort of the top dogs in all of this, really. They, to me, they were the coolest band of all because yep. there was something slightly mysterious mm-hmm. about them, mm-hmm. something quite communal. Mm-hmm. And I did really, I mean, in a very different way from the band, I really liked those early records. I was too young to come in when you came in, like the with, with Dark Star sure. and Live Dead and Anthem sure. of the Sun and all that. Exactly. So I sort of yeah. missed out on the psychedelic exactly. phase and came straight, straight into in the kind the of songs. country rock Americana, yeah, the, the songs yeah, that the Hunter. Hunter had so much to do with. Yeah, absolutely. And I still think, I love Boxer Rain, I yeah, love yeah, Friend yeah, of yeah. the Devil, no. I mean, it's Ripple. I, I bought Live Dead and then a year later I bought American Beauty, working as for some reason I didn't passed you by. Part, passed mm. and American Beauties initially baffled me because this is not the same band as we're playing like 90, 90 minute versions of Ducks no are, you know but the songs are so beautiful and then you hear about the circumstances I believe Garcia's mother died during making that record I think Phil Lesh's father had died just before it or something along those lines and there is that melancholy tinged to yes. quite a lot of oh, it. Well, also, th- th- they had David Crosby come up and basically taught them how to sing harmonies. Yes. Beautiful And harmonies. there are beautiful harmonies. We were talking about this yesterday, that I, I, I always sort of detected the influence of, of Gene Clark's yep. Birds songs on 
particularly this era Absolutely. of the dead. Yeah. And I, I have no sort of real, other than the, the Crosby connection, yeah, yeah. I, I'm no, I'm, I don't think I know of an interview where Garcia says, we listened to Gene Clark's song. I'm sure they did. Yeah, I mean, Dylan you, Clark, the, the, the Expedition you know, album. Uh, but, and then I saw them at Lyceum in 72, which was just a fabulous show, even though it turns out the night I went to was one of the least good nights they played. Well, I do envy you, because I loved Europe 72. Yeah. Yeah, me and my little buddies, whatever we were, like 14, you know, we just worshipped yeah. them. I mean, I didn't see them until 74 and um, Ali well, Pali. Oh, I went to that. And it wasn't great. It's so terrible. I never. It was terrible. <laughs> I saw, and then I saw them maybe a couple of times uh, after that, including this show at yeah, Shoreline. Sure I think it's probably 91, right. actually. And at that point, mm. did I care that much about no. the dead? And it was and a they strange went, they thing. They weren't going for a very long time. In, in, in but there was still like the grandchildren of the original. It seemed to me like the kids or even the grandkids of the original Fine. deadhead hippies were now still part of this travelling. People would just would spend the whole summer going from show to I mean, show. It's the model yeah. of the dedicated, obsessive yes. fan. Yes, yes. Uh, uh, it was almost something that went beyond rock and roll. Yeah. It mm. was a, an obsessive We've following. Actually got a, we got a very good Frank Broughton piece on precisely that. Uh, I think he wrote for ID in about... In, in the early 90s. Absolutely. Uh, and, and very much about that. No, I mean, it, 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 they were an interesting... They became a sort of an, an institution, a phenomenon. There's a very good documentary on Netflix, The Other One, which yep. is about, about Bob Weir, yep. which is really worth watching. If I was say, which albums to get, get Live Dead, get American Beauty, get Working Was Dead, mm. get Europe 72. I yeah. think those are the... the just the best. I, I think we see eye to eye on yeah. that, ear to ear, yeah. literally. I think we, I think we've just about done the day. Yeah, I just, I just want to sort of yeah, mention the three pieces because, because they're great, and because Hunter is not only a fantastic lyricist. I would say, I mean, it's interesting he ended up collaborating with Bob Dylan. I mean, yeah. you know, for Dylan to turn to another lyricist mm-hmm. says a lot. I mean, he he wrote he wrote quite a lot of Down in the Groove, not a great Dylan album, but he wrote that wonderful cover, that wonderful song Duquesne Whistle. Yeah, yeah, which I think is one of Dylan's greatest I didn't know late co- I didn't tracks. know that he'd co-written yeah, that. Which, which is just glorious. Yeah, yeah. And he's a wonderful interview. He's such yeah. an articulate, educated, literate man. Yeah. And, and there's lovely quotes. I'm obviously not going to read them out. He says a lovely... In this 1975 interview for... So Bruce Pollock, one of our writers, mm-hmm. is one of the first music books I bought called In Their Own Words. And it was interviews, straight transcriptions of... Inter- mm-hmm. uh, I think straight... Uh, anyway... Within, with songwriters. Yeah, yeah. And it was everyone from Hal David and Carol Bayer Sager to Robert Hunter. Right. So it was really interesting. Hunter says, The dead are the personification of my values in popular art. We began as traditional musicians working in old time and bluegrass. We're influenced by Phil Lesh to spread out and improvise a little, but Absolutely. never beyond. And eventually, year by year, invented our own conception of the whole of the music native and accessible to us until it became something entirely itself. Yeah. Which I think is, a, a, you know, aforementioned Ken Hunt for Dark Star magazine yes. appropriately. <laughs> and then and then just as a sort of bonus, we had Richard Williams in here the other day, didn't we, Jasper? And I'm not sure he would have admitted to being a Grateful Dead fan in that podcast episode, but he did <laughs> review American Beauty for Melody Maker. And he says, you know, perhaps the most attractive side of their collective personalities kind of showcased in mm-hmm. this album. The low-key harmony sing-along side with pretty old-timey songs set to light acoustic backings. And then he says something which I really like. In apropos, because you were listening, I think, to Working Man's yesterday and saying, yeah, I think you said, who are these people singing out of tune? And I, kind of, <laughs> I knew what you meant, but 
I like what Richard says here. This is, he talks about their harmonies, straining ever so slightly, but always gelling. This is where they beat C, S, N and Y. The dead sound human, yeah. never manufactured. And I think it's just That's that, a fair point. I mean, there yeah, is yeah. A, there's a sort of frigidity. I yeah. mean, there were, there were no yeah. great yeah. singers. No, that's right. I mean, Garcia became, I, as I said, what I said earlier about Hunter became the means by which Garcia learned to sing. And I think Garcia also listened to a lot of Graham Parsons, and I hear a lot of Graham Parsons in Garcia singing. That's um, for sure. That is possible. He, I just don't know. Uh, you know Flying uh, burritos, he must have he, Absolutely. Yeah. And that uh, Europe 72, where, in fact, they re-recorded the vocals after the fact. They aren't the lively, well, mostly not the lively vocals. But I think Garcia sings really rather lovely on a lot of that stuff. You know, I'm fond of his voice, yeah, I have to say. Yeah. I mean, it became good, but I'm sure Jasper will plonk in the vocal bit of Dark Star as, as an excerpt. And it's horrible. It's, it's just, luckily, it's only about 30 seconds long before they spiral off into the, you know, a lysergic out of space. You know, yeah, 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 yeah. brilliant. I mean, also worth quickly mentioning, we have two Grateful Dead audio interviews on Rock's Back Pages. Yeah. One's quite a long one that Jerry did in 69 yeah, yeah, with yeah. Michael Lyden. Yeah. And then there's a nice radio interview. It's great. Because um, it's sort of relevant to the Rob Alvey? Is that, yeah, yeah, Ted Alvey talking to Jerry and David Nelson and Marmaduke yes. of, of the spin-off. Dead, the dead spin-off, the new riders of the Purple yep. Sage, which Hunter was also associated yes. with. Anyway, rest in peace, Robert Hunter. Absolutely. We we loved you. So the other free stuff on the homepage this week is by the disc and music echo writer Phil Symes, who later became quite a sort of important PR guy in the movie business. Small correction, it had become disc again at that point. This is a magazine which started off as disc, became disc and music echo, and then reverted back to its disc. Well, I have to pull you up on that because there are two, two of the pieces of disc and music echo. This is your, so this is the pedantry corner. (laughs) Two of disc and music echo and the third one is just disc. disc. So, Yabu sucks. Uh, But just to, Quick, uh, uh, the reason these appealed to me was because they were about things that were happening just when I was really becoming a sort of pop sure. fan. I got my first transistor radio. And so there's, a, there's an interview with Neil Diamond. And in the top 20, literally the week, or top 10, the week I got my first transistor radio was <laughs> I Am, I Said oh, God. by Neil Diamond. And this interview that Phil does with Neil in March 71 is... All about him writing this song, which Neil Diamond describes as both psychoanalytic and autobiographical. And he says he spent more... It's it's a preposterous song of sort of massive kind of egomania, really, isn't it? By a preposterous man. (laughs) I I mean, we've got a number of interviews with Neil Diamond on the site, all of which make me roar with laughter, because for someone whose artistic achievements were so slight... 
Boy, did he have a big idea yes. of himself. He really, really thought he, he really was raised the real himself. Thing. I mean, he was just a little Jewish kid from <laughs> Brooklyn who wrote songs in the Brill Building. Yeah, and then right. somehow he became this absurd MOR singer songwriter. I think what freaked him out was the likes of Carol King suddenly getting real credibility with the love crowd. Yeah. And he wanted some of that. But yeah. the trouble is, his songwriting was still. Like Vegas, yes, you know, brill building to Vegas, yes. you know, yes. and so he could—he was incapable of singing in a credible way. Carol King could sit behind on a microphone, yeah. make a record like Tapestry, which is just marvelous, and inhabit the songs, and it all feels correct. Yeah, he's. All bullshit and bluster. Yeah, and that's why, you know, you and I, as as band fanatics, particularly object, as so many did at the time, <laughs> to his starring role, his his cameo appearance yeah. at The Last Waltz. Because Robbie Robertson was producing him, wasn't he, at uh, the time? Robbie had produced him, and, I mean, the great scandal from Levon's point of view, and, I, and who knows whether it's the gospel truth, but uh, Muddy Waters was in danger of being bumped for Neil Diamond, because Neil Diamond was a bigger pop, was a pop Jeez, star. I know. And I mean, and, and, I mean, look, that may be traducing Robertson terribly. All we know is that when Neil wanders on stage in, one of, in those big sort of collared shirts and, <laughs> that everyone wore in the mid-70s. The Vegas shirts. And starts singing that. I think he sings, Come dry your eyes. <laughs> you know, and it's just like, <laughs> this has got nothing to do with the band. band. <laughs> it's just to do with Robbie kind of flaunting the fact that he's yeah, produced yeah. a hit album. Yeah. I mean, anyway. Anyway. Neil, people love Neil Diamond. Uh, I, I've you never, don't. <laughs> and I didn't from the... I hated that song from the word. Uh, and I say exactly the same thing. It was a big hit in England, and I remember just despising it. I can't say I've ever heard it, so well, I will have to listen to but it. But you will know, and I will have to put it in the podcast. Caroline. Oh, yeah. Da, 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 da. Yeah. yeah, there you go. Okay, let's move on. Um, moving on. Also on the transistor radio that time was Michael Jackson, the young Michael Jackson, who was about a year older than me, and I was so fascinated with the, the idea of this this star, this this amazing kid who who was like kind of my age. Mm-hmm. That was a, that was a strange thing. And so here's this interview, phone interview. Phil Symes calls Los Angeles and says this is his first interview on his own. But now that may be true for the UK press, I don't know. But anyway, so Michael's finished his homework and it's it's, it's his sort of extraordinary, really, you know. Um, It's a remarkable interview, actually. Yeah, and he says, I could never go solo, not with the group being a family thing. It would be like breaking away from the family. He probably meant it at 14. This is a kid who's already been, like, you know, beaten by... By his father, yeah. you know. Interesting thing he says, Phil asks whether it's the success of Donny Osmond that sort of spurred yes. him to, to embark on a solo career. And, and he sort of slightly deflects that and says he admires the Osbonds and yada, yada. First time I ever went on stage, I was so scared, but now I'm never afraid. Sometimes I don't like leaving the stage. Now, he's already saying that. He always used to say that, and well, in the few interviews he did, he he only felt the only place he felt at home, yeah. at, home at all was the stage. Mm. So he's already saying this in 1972. It's tragic, actually. I mean, it's it's like it's uh, all these arrows pointing towards his ultimate destination. Something exactly. 
The third piece, quickly, is with Sylvia. Now, we were talking the other day about Rapper's Absolutely. Delight. So, this is 1973, Disc Magazine, yes. rather than Disc Sorry. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, Sylvia is at number three in the Hot 100 in America with Pillow Talk, the almost X-rated Pillow yes, Talk. Yes. And Phil Symes asks her about, uh, about that song. She says, and I don't think I ever knew this, that she wrote it for Al Green. She was she she was really? um, she was really inspired by Al Green's hits and you know seventy one. Yeah, yeah. So she took a tape of Pillow Talk to Willie Mitchell. He thought it was too sexy for Al. <laughs> So she did it herself. Yeah, and that piece also talks about Je T'aime, which is, of course, Gainsborough, Jane Birkin. Pillow Talk was sort of the American soul version (laughs) of Je T'aime, one on blue. So anyway, those those are the three those are the three great uh, stuff, great pieces great, by the featured great pieces, featured really writer. Yeah, they're really and nice, actually. Yeah. We're now, of course, going to talk about what isn't free on Rocksback Pages. What is new for subscribers? And starting with our audio interview with Lolita Holloway. We had some discussion in the office about the precise pronunciation because Barney and I. We for more, years. For years, we were Lolly We thought we'd better check on Wikipedia with all the helpful little yeah. phonetic <laughs> <laughs> rendering of the name. And it said Lolita. So it's Lolita. I love Vladimir yeah. Nabokov. Uh, I think we're all in different degrees fans of Lolita Absolutely. Holloway stuff. Absolutely. I mean, because we all love disco. I think in some ways a great discovery was Barnes been playing her earlier stuff, which is really deep soul. In this interview, she's talking about her soon-to-be-released Queen of the Night album. This is around January 78. We sort of dated we think. it by something said during the interview. That yeah, January 78. unfortunately, Cliff White's not around any longer to no. confirm this. Um, and it's, 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 it's an odd interview because she's engaged at some points and not at other times. But when she is engaged, she's really rather fabulous. So we'll start off by playing this clip, which is... Her describing this process, she came out of the church, right? She was something of a gospel star in Chicago. I mean, not just any other gospel singer. She was something of a star. And then she went secular at a time when it was still a really uncomfortable experience. And in this clip, she talks about precisely that. A lot of people started coming out of the church and recording secular music. Right. Um, they kind of got ostracised from the church. Is that feeling still there, or? or oh, you mean like when, when like the, like I stopped singing gospel, recording gospel, and went into blues. Yeah, right. At first, when I first, because I know Aretha caught it hard because I used to hear people talking about her. And they would be very cold. Like if you go in church, they would be cold. They would sit there like ice. Look like they were. Because when I first started, I mean, you know, I could tell the difference because, like, when I would go to church, they would like make me feel like I was an outcast. You know, Mm. like I was doing something evil or something. And a lot of times they would, you know, maybe the minister or someone would call me up to sing, and then people were like, cold. You know. Well, 
Also in this interview, she talks about still wanting to sing the big R&B ballads that she does on all her albums. Whilst never rejecting disco, Cliff White's fairly sniffy about disco, but she's absolutely fine about it. And we were talking about this today in the office, is that some of the best disco singers have been the rawest, most gospel singers. You know, I'd say Sylvester's a case in point, mm. and she's definitely a case in point, where in order to dominate this massive four-on-the-floor groove, you have to really, really have a strong voice, mm. you know. And where people like Ruth Franklin, who was a very strong singer, always sort of seemed shoved to one side by the groove on her handful of attempts at disco. Um, and I think there's also an element of the dance floor, being able to uplift the yes. dance floor using that gospel uh, kind of technique. Well, I mean, it's electrifying when you're actually there. It's euphoric. And you're yes, exactly. It's a euphoria. It is. Sylvester, in, I've just read this, his biography recently, and he actually talks about the experience of church and the experience of singing to a disco crowd has been mm. a very similar mm. experience. I really love that. So she talks about that. She talks about her stage act, about how she guides her band according to what the audience is like. As I said, her gospel background. She used to play club dates with the Mighty Clouds of Joy, which is, you know, slightly extraordinary. And she talks rather sadly about her ambitions and that she wants to be as big as Aretha and Gladys Knight and all that. And I suspect by 78, she sort of suspected it possibly wasn't going to happen. And of course, know. little does she know at this point that what she's going to become best known for is the theft of her vocals, <laughs> the sampling of her vocals for this enormous Italian like, disco, house, this house. Italo house, house, house from in the late 80s, yes. Black Boxes, Ride on Time, Samples, Love Sensation. which was released on my band's record label, That's right. De- Deconstruction. And I remember listening to it, and I didn't recognise, I knew Love Sensation already, but I didn't recognise that Ride on Time, Ride on, as coming from it. She got lawyers on the case, mm-hmm. and they got Miles Singer Heather Small to recreate her part. On so the, they wouldn't have to pay. On, so they wouldn't have to pay on, on the second issue of it. And never told rest Martin and I, you know, that, that they'd done this. They, we were still together as a band and still kind of trying to make... make and they'd, like, snuck wow. her into the studio. Layers. And, and that actually is the formation of her link with what became M People, because I think that Black Box was very much Mike Pickering's introduction to the label and so on and so okay, forth. Okay, isn't that um, interesting? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, listen, I actually listened to Ride on Time Update, and it's it's pretty dreadful. Yeah. Um, Except the, the vocal samples are, are <laughs> so sort of hair-raisingly powerful, yeah. I think. I, yeah. I mean, it's interesting that the Italians would do that, because one of the great sources of disco in the m- mid-'80s was from Italy, Italo mm. Disco. And some of it was pure fromage. Well, can we have an Italian? What do you think it's... Formaggio. I tell you what, there's someone next door who could actually pronounce it properly for us. Let me go and get him. So we have a genuine Italian who works next door. Would you like to introduce yourself? Yes. Good morning. Yes. Good afternoon. My name is Giacomo Bruzzo, and I am a (laughs) neighbour. What we were asking very kindly to do is to pronounce for us an authentic sort of Genoese voice the Italian word for cheese. Formaggio. Oh, that, that'll do. Beautiful. OK. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. much. You're done. You're very welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs>
that's that's the Lisa. Is, are we going to play another clip later on when she talks about being on stage and how she works with the band and how yeah. she works with the audience? And as I said, the, there are bits in this interview where you feel her losing interest in slightly long-winded questions, but when she gets going, she's, she's terrific. I think some of the soul writers of that era were slightly confused because they had known about Lolita as a, as not just a ballad singer, yeah. but she was a great deep soul singer, yeah. particularly on songs written by the great Sam Dees. Mm-hmm. Uh, the title track of her 1975 album, Cry To Me, mm-hmm. is one of the great tearjerker ballads so she could she loved singing ballads probably that was her preferred mode but so she's a rare example of of someone who cut i would say three or four sort of decimating ballads Mm. but she also recorded three or four amazing disco tracks love sensation is just so it's, fa- it's fantastic. Oh, yeah. You're a fan of that. Well, yeah, yeah. And interestingly, I was a sort of unconscious fan. I yeah. knew Love knew Sensation, but I wasn't aware that it was Lolita Holloway. You know, it's, yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. it's just such a great pitch. Yeah, exactly. And with the Salsa Orchestra backing her and yes. all that sort of stuff, Absolutely, you know. Yes. Um, it's sort of fully disco. Yeah. I mean, Hit and Run was her first yeah. disco hit in 76. Yeah. I mean, was, you know, she's worked with like Bunny Sigler and all those sorts of guys. And it's, it's, it's fabulous. The audio. But tell us about everything. Well, that's not everything, <laughs> but a lot of what's new well, in the Rock well, Spectacle. Here's, here's a sampling of what's new in the Rock Oh, are you sampling? I'm sampling. This, this is, this is <laughs> black <Stealing>. box. <laughs> <laughs> Starting in April 61, Record Mirror, we tend to think of screaming at audiences as being something that happened with like Frank Sinatra mm. and then sort of died away. And then came, and back, and with came the back with the Beatles. Not at all true, and I've really discovered this, is that girl fans behaving badly as something had never gone away. This is Adam Faith, supported by, among others, Acker Bilk, Matt Munro, etc. So they weren't screaming for Acker They weren't screaming for Acker. <laughs> no, they nicked his bowler hat. So one, one of the fans came Scandalous. on stage and, and stole his bowler hat. They How don't rude. make well, fans like that. Well, the, recording the BBC's beat show at the Albert Hall. And the subhead is Bad Manners Beat Show. <laughs> and, and, and Norm Dropkick says, I say that a small minority of the audience, a second BBC Beat Show, put on the worst display of ill manners since last year's Bewley Jazz Festival fiasco. At one time, there seemed to be a danger of the proceedings being stopped altogether as the stage of the Albert Hall was full of squealing girls all trying to get to grips with Adam Faith. Um, <laughs> and this is not the only report like get this. Get to grips. Get to grips with Adam oh, Faith. That's uh, like Adam Faith trying to get to grips with our wonderful guest, Dawn James. Dawn James. <laughs> Adam Faith was a very attractive lad, wasn't oh, he? Certainly compared to Bill. <laughs> It's not your type, Mark. <laughs> anyway, so it's just a really interesting snapshot of the stuff that was going on at the yeah. live shows in those days. This next one is one of those gems where you, I start proofreading it because I think it's just going to be a fill the slot, you know, and it's Silla Black being interviewed by Peter Jones for the record Mirror again in 65. And it stopped me in my tracks. She's talking about her, next, her current single, I've Been Wrong Before, and she's asked about it. She says, no, I don't think it's got particular commercial appeal. I was with a gang of musicians, Sound Incorporated, actually, when I first heard it. They listened to the backing and thought it marvellous. But I listened to the voice and I thought it was hilarious. It was Randy Newman, the composer. 
Well, hilarious, but it also had a lot of soul. Anyway, I found I couldn't stop singing it afterwards. Now, this is the very first mention of Ranty Newman in the Rock's Back Pages are Great, great. And I love the way she responded to the song. Mm. And you tell, you tell the story about... Yeah, I, have, I've, I remember mentioning this to you guys, that I in an interview that I did with Randy, I asked him, what's the favourite version of your song by another artist? And I was expect I don't know what I was expecting him to say, but I wasn't expecting him to say Silla Black. And he said, after sort of pondering it, for a moment, he said, it's Silla Black's version of I've Been Wrong Before. I think he's absolutely sort of spine-chilling. And, and it is. It's a terrific yeah. performance. Well, obviously, he spoke to her in some way, and she was able well, to... Well, absolutely. It also had a lot of soul, and I found I couldn't stop singing yeah. it afterwards. Well, then exactly. even better, I met Silla Black not long before her death. A lot, I went a lot to of see, luck. Yeah, <laughs> we went to see... We went to that... What's it called? The, the Cafe Cox or something in Piccadilly. And Silla Black was there and was a friend of the people we were with. Mm. So I I went up to her and said, I thought, I've got something I can tell Silla. And I said, I just wanted you to know that I want to be Randy Newman. And he said, your version of I've Been Wrong Before is his favourite cover, of, cover of a song of his. And she and I don't, she probably went, oh, that's great, Chuck. <laughs> <laughs> no, she didn't. But she, she did say how much she loved the song. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so isn't that great? Full circle. In my job doing this, mm. it's finding things like that yeah. to light you up, you know. Mm. Just when you're least expecting, I thought, sort of black interview, it's going to be maybe a bit jokey and a bit amusing, but there won't be anything great in it. And there's that in it. She was a great singer. You oh, really I, mustn't forget uh, that. Uh, yeah, uh, yes. I, I, when I was a kid, yeah. you know, anyone who had a heart and things like that, I just. Yeah. I, just I mean, Alfie, my God. Yeah, and that, that's a tough. Song I mean, she's a belter. She's kind of Ethel Merman rather than sort of you know, yes. Dionne Warwick, but fabulous. Within that, great. Yeah. But, baby. next thing is a fabulous disc 1972 not disc um, <laughs> Bill Withers been interviewed by the wonderful Robin Katz who's been a good friend yes. of Rock's Black Pages for a long time Robin was she wrote about substantially about black music for disc for Record Mirror and also for various magazines interviewed Bill Withers and he he just comes over fabulously. This oh, is a guy a fabulous I man. love Bill Withers. You know, who thinks, you know. And I've got a few quotes here, if, if you don't mind me kind of going, going through Please them. Please do. He says, I don't want to get dependent on being called a genius to survive. I don't want to get so sucked in by flattery that I can't get out. Which is interesting. <sighs> Great turn of phrase. he did get out. He's a man who walked yeah. away. He you did, know. really. Um, he says, maybe I'm too serious, but when you're swearing love for someone and your hands are turning in time with three other people, either your body or your mouth is lying. That's in relation to like bands like The Temptations, the, the, the R&B. And that's in relation to the fact that he sat down on stage. Mm. She asked him, do you think it's limiting yeah. you to sit down on stage? And he's yeah, because he sat on a stool with an acoustic yeah, exactly, guitar. Exactly. I mean, he, he, was, he was like a black James yeah. Taylor in he's, that sense. He says, it's a very dangerous responsibility athletes and entertainers carry. We are grown-ups playing children games it's such an interesting he's, mind i mean you you would have seen that oh, documentary yes. and, and you yeah. thought this is a man who just has never done work in order just mm. to be popular yeah. to be a star to make money Abs i mean absolutely. he really is very very unusual yeah. and when he stopped enjoying it because he was being asked to change to make money he just walked off last couple of quotes that are about the sort of 
uh, how you can be political as a singer, songwriter, and so on. And he says, if someone decides to push that magic button, there's not going to be much us guitar players can do about it. You know, he knows really how far he can go. He says, you have to make people think. What else can you do to defend ourselves? Throw Motown records at tanks? <laughs> I mean, who, who else not only comparable would have said something like that? Yeah, I know. Great. I mean, I, I was reading this interview and just like the hair standing on my back and my head. It's, mm. like, it's one of those rare things where you mm. read a pop musician who's really got something interesting to say, to say. about his craft, about yeah. who he is and everything. And about the world too. And about the world too. I mean, that documentary, I had always had this idea of him as being quite cranky. And I'm sure he has been quite cranky, but he just... He wasn't cranky in he that has film at all. He's suffered from depression. depression. I think he probably um, has. But, but no, I, 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 I fell in love with him. Yeah, that yeah, totally. I mean, we all totally. love his music. Ah, yeah. you know. We have at least one audio interview with him on the site, which is pretty great as well. I want to spread the news That if it feels it's good getting used Oh, you just keep on using me Until you use me up 74, Melody Maker, Michael Watts interviewing Jimmy Page. Oh, Jimmy. Uh, and Michael Watts is kind of asking slightly more questions about um, Bullskin and whatever it's house. Yes. You know, uh, Jimmy says, I think Alistair Crowley was the undiscovered genius of the 20th century. I'm saying no more about him. <laughs> and he's, then, but he then proceeds to say, more about Pete him. Townsend always mentions Mia Baba, but I just don't want to know about telling anybody anything about Crowley. That's all I'm saying. Oh. He's, 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 he's so mysterious, that page. 1980, Richard Strange. Richard Strange had had a sort of like a semi-successful career with the Doctors of Madness yeah. and who's since gone on to have actually kind of a really substantial career as an artist, as a yeah. curator, as a writer, as yeah. all kinds of stuff. First, it starts off with a really terrible joke. Uh, how do you God. find out a Scotsman's clan? He says, well, you stick your hand up his kilt. If you feel two quarter pounders, he's a McDonald." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which is oh, a ghastly joke. But then he says right. actually something interesting about Sorry about that. <laughs> he just left, the, basically broken up the Doctor's Man. He says, yeah. being a member of a group is something I'd never entertain again. A Revox doesn't answer back. <laughs> <laughs> a Revox, for the listeners who don't know, is a, a two-track tape recorder. Interesting figure, Richard Strange, about whom I know very little, but I remember when I started the NME, there were people who revered him very highly mm. because he was... It was just a very different kind of... Uh, Pop trap. Singer-songwriter, yeah, yeah. wasn't it? Whatever the hell he was. Anyway, yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, what's interesting is he's not the sort of person at the time you'd have imagined having a really quite extensive career. Mm. And you go on his Wikipedia page, it's extraordinary mm. the amount of stuff. And he was said. an influence on punk to some degree, oh, yeah, I think, yeah, wasn't yeah, he? Yeah, no doubt. And, and, but... you know, and, and also on the New Romantics to some extent as right. well. You yeah. know. Moving on... Not related to Steve, though. No. <laughs> His cousin, um, his little cousin uh, Steve. J- Joe Higgs, who's really important. He's one of the guys who first really discovered Bob Marley and promoted him. Yeah. He was a, 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 a rock steady and reggae singer who's just about to have a, an album he'd actually cut in 72, which was meant to be released by Ireland, who shelved it because they were going to put their weight behind Bob Marley. It was coming out on another label. And he's been interviewed by Penny Real. And Penny Real recounts this extraordinary story where they were all working at that stage for Cox and Don. Is that Studio One, Cox and I can't remember. Anyway, yes. Cox and Don. Studio One. And all these artists, including Bob Marley, had all gone up to kind of get their royalties and basically been told to bugger off by Cox and so they hadn't come, they hadn't come through. Because record producers in, in Jamaica simply didn't pay their artists so they could possibly avoid it. So Joe Higgs goes out, banging on Coxon's door. And, and finally Coxon comes out. 
What's going, Joe? He asked in a soft, almost kindly voice. Is this the way we've done business together, out here in the street? No, it was in my office, man to man. If you have a grouse, come see me and we'll discuss it in privacy. I didn't mean nothing, Beat, said a subdued Joe Higgs. I was just mad because you've never given me what I deserve. Then come to me, Joe, invited the genial Dodd. Don't let it be said that Coxon holds out on a friend. You'll get what's due to you, only not out here, not in front of the whole world. Higgs dismounted from his bike and followed the big producer into the inner sanctum of Studio One. The crowd in the porch heard a fat thud followed by a long yell of pain, and a few seconds later witnessed the blooded Joe Higgs come staggering onto the street, clutching his hand to his head, an eruption of crimson gushing through his fingers. Gosh. The strongest left hook in Rocksteady had put out the singer's eye. Oh. Dodd reappeared in the doorway, surveyed the crowd. Anyone else want what he deserves? The big man said. Wow, Jesus I mean, Christ, that's me I've looked at photographs of Joe Higgs, and he appears to have two eyes, but one of them may be glass. You never know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Bloody hell. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a great story. It's a very, very good it's a, it's a very good piece. It's not an interview as such. It's more really an extended mm. profile of Joe mm. Higgs. By the greatest reggae writer, so oh, probably oh. of all. I think so. Vivian Goldman may... Co- have some disagreement with that, but <laughs> even I'm sure she would say. Yeah, no, I, I, we 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 love Penny Who we lost about a year ago, probably two two years ago. I um, think it's a year. It's, it's probably two. two. Yeah, that's our age. Musician 1982, John Mendelssohn on pop fashion. Men, it's our Mendo moment. Mendo moment. Um, Bing. John Mendelssohn had written a lot about fashion. He had the, the Eleganza column in Cream for yes. a long time. And so this is in about this is over its three. Decade history, only a handful of genuinely new wrinkles have been added to the fundamental notion of rock dress. Namely, that what is most cool is that which raises Pop's blood pressure the highest and inspires Mom to whimper, where do we go wrong, most piteously? Uh, <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a very good kind of you know, look at stuff. Yeah. Henry Rollins, interviewed by Rich Kremlin, LA Times, 1984. I mean, Henry Rollins, Black Flag, I, what do you feel about Henry Rollins? I was a big fan of the Rollins era, Black, in yeah. fact, pre-Rollins Black Flag. Yeah, I yeah. thought they were probably the most powerful band mm-hmm. that came out of the, the Southland in LA. I did one interview with them for NME, and Henry was fairly new in the lineup, and he was like this sort of psychotic marine yes. with the muscles and, and tats, and he had these intense, yeah. staring almost Manson-esque yeah. eyes. I mean, I thought he was an incredible front man, yeah. and and I think he's yeah, and, and he's. Proved himself to be a really pretty interesting guy. Yeah, almost, the almost the creator of Straight Edge has been a guy who kind of eschewed all sort of drugs and drink. But and Damaged by Black Flag, I think, is probably the greatest American punk yeah. album. And he's a pretty hardcore guy. You know, the last thing I want is a wife, a home, kids, investment security. All of that makes me sick. It's not for me. But then he says, you know, he's asked kind of, you know, how hard is your life? He says, what about Hendrix doing the Chitlin circuit with Little Richard, not getting paid, starving? That's hard. What I do isn't hard, you know. Mm. So he's, he's honest, he's, relatively self-aware. He's, he's a bright guy, relatively self-aware. Exactly. Yes. Should we be having an award every week? So <laughs> self-awareness. The, the, the most relatively <laughs> self-aware rock star. Well, he, he's been beaten to it by Bill Withers this week. Yeah, you know, he's, he's the champion. Totally self-aware. Um, Jimmy Jam, the great Jam and Lewis production team, talking to Paolo here at NME in '86, and this is about first the first quotes about him working with Janet Jackson and. The one thing that we don't really realise is that their way of working with an artist was just to hang out with them for a week or two, to just just go out, eat meals, talk to them. And he says, Janet always used to say little things, and we'd make mental notes about them and say, OK, we're going to use that. Apparently, she said, you know, when she came back to the studio, 
she was staggered by what she was reading lyrics and hearing because it was sure. actually it was her you know yeah. and he says normally we end up working with artists who seem to be the underdog maybe someone who's had a hit and is in a slump and there's some truth in that mm. i mean you know, the sos band from a low ebb when they wrote just anyway, it's, it's, a, it's a good interview it's only jimmy jam terry lewis refused to be interviewed well jimmy jam was some kind of i think kind of genius oh. melodist and producer we, 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 some we, of his chords just still we, take my breath away. And, and little details like yes they'd use drum machines but nothing else was sequenced you know it's a time when everyone was sequencing everything yes. everything was played by hand yeah. and the result is their stuff swings like the clappers yeah. I mean it really does yeah, yeah. you know these are guys who've got Duke Ellington records in their record collections yeah, even sure. though they're playing sure. R&B completely Jenner to Jim Sullivan, Boston Globe, 1990. Peter Jenner was the Floyd's first manager. He went on to form Blackhill Enterprises, which put all the free concerts on in the park. Managed loads of people, including, among others, for periods of time, Ian Deary and The Clash. First of all, Ian Deary became a monster, turned from being, a really, being really nice to being a real pain in the ass. You know, it's dismaying to hear. It's sad, but I've heard this from one or two other sources. You well, know. as I said to you, I only met him once, I thought he was absolutely yeah. charming, but, you know, yeah. it, was, it was like 20-minute conversation, sure. you know. And Peter Jenner's not someone to badmouth someone because no. he's just not like that. No, sure. You know, he's a gent. And, so, and, and he's talking about when the clash were falling apart on tour in America. He says, mm. for Joe Strummer to complain that he, Mick Jones, was behaving like a rock star was a mammoth hypocrisy because Joe's behaving like a rock star himself. Yeah. You know, Fair enough. Yeah. Last place is Nick Cave to John Savage in the Observer in 1992. I just quite like this because he's sort of explaining his methodology of writing songs and mm. how he puts them. Maybe I haven't got the guts to write songs about exactly how I feel. So I write these narrative songs and have the characters go out there and do the dirty work. That makes a lot of sense, yep. you know, because, I mean, there are moments when you feel Nick is really singing, not, he would loathe me for saying, singing from the heart. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, in a way, it's, yeah. it's, it's everything's at one remove, yeah. isn't it? You know. It's I, I don't, it's, sorry. It's an interesting distinction to draw. Yeah. Writing a story, yeah. a narrative that you can then kind of step back yeah. from or telling your own well, story quite, through your music. I, think. I mean, interestingly, we, talk, we started the podcast by talking about Robert Hunter and in a way that he did precisely that Jerry Garcia yes. created a lot sets of characters and so on and so forth. Exactly. There's very little me and I in those songs. Or mm. if there is, it's someone else saying it. You yes, know? yes, um, precisely. So uh, what That's your got? lot. That's my lot. I've so I'm going to hand my, I've, I've shot my bolt. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> uh, we're going to hand over to Jasper now, who has a few a uh, delectable pieces, morsels yeah. for us. Yes, uh, starting with Laurie Anderson. Interviewed by Rob Young in The Wire in May 2000. We all like Laurie Anderson quite a bit. Yeah. And this is really interesting because just done this project about Moby Dick. She wrote mm-hmm. a sort of album, sort of section of songs based on Moby Dick. Sure. And so she's talking about having read and studied Herman Melville's copy of the Bible mm-hmm. that he'd annotated, although all the annotations have been erased by mm-hmm. his wife. But Fantastic. she studied that in order to sort of get into his headspace mm-hmm. when, when writing Moby Dick and talks about being afraid of him not being quite gone and him being angry at her for what she's done with his <laughs> story and whatever. But 
She says, so what his book is about is beauty, staggering beauty. The storyline is great, but it's not everything. All those cardboard characters cutting up blubber, boiling it up, having their fights. Did you know his first draft didn't have Ahab in it? Imagine him giving it to his editor, and his editor reads it. Hmm, those guys go fishing, look around, come back, that's it. Where's the engine here, Herman? What's moving this thing? <laughs> Which I think is just a great that, passage. That, it's very that, funny. Of her. Uh, Laurie Anderson is someone who, who extraordinarily is a performance artist. Had a pop hit in, what, 81? Mm. With o The Superman. magnificent O Superman. Uh, you know, I was looking back to that time, and what a great stretch in terms of music 80s 79 80 81 was you got grace jones having first hits with night clubbing and so on and so forth you had oh superman you had the talking heads starting to have chart hits i was working at the bbc as a technical stores porter we had a radio on which was set to radio one the whole time it was piped you know and it sounded really really good it had a nice fat speaker in it and it was a proper bbc bit of kit and oh superman was being played on radio one all the time. It's unthinkable now. It's, now it's absolutely unthinkable. And so she never left us. I think that those my generation who first heard her always would keep half an ear out for what she's doing. And often it's, I have to say, incomprehensible. Mm. I love that quote. You know, the way she tells it. Yeah. She's funny. And it's great. It's, it's well worth a short interview. It's well mm. worth a read just yeah, yeah. because, it, you know, it, she's just talking about also her creative process yeah. when it comes to sort of deconstructing mm. this huge work of literature she also she's extremely funny as well about the two most important works of the 19th century being the communist manifesto and bartleby the scrivener <laughs> which is a sort of rock back pages podcast so she's clearly a melville theme. freak she must, yeah, have, I mean, must she... have really well i mean i think melville is one of the great writers i know moby dick is the novel everyone says they never they can never finish but it is it's got some extraordinary writing in it so it's nice to hear her That's lovely. About, I, yeah. I really love that. That's great. Moving on to September 2009, mm. when Coldplay... <laughs> this is for Paul, by the way. Paul, Dedicated has, to Paul Kelly. He has very strong feelings about Coldplay, and I can say Comes that no word of lies. when any of us mention <laughs> the name of this group, so we mention it quite a lot. We do. <laughs> but, so it's Coldplay being supported in Manchester by Jay-Z, of all people. This is mind-bending. Which is a bizarre... I mean... You have to kind of think, well, Coldplay were obviously huge enough to be able to get Jay-Z to support them, which is sort of... In its, it's all in its, wrong, it? it is all wrong. I mean, but I suppose Jay-Z wouldn't really want Coldplay supporting him. So, But funnily enough, Caroline Sullivan, writing for The Guardian, rather likes Coldplay. They, you know, they were regarded as being a credible act at that point. It, it, well, it, it, I, it took a few years for the whole I, world... I think by to... this point, they actually were no longer credible. Because right? she's surprised. She's surprised okay. at, at it being good. And she says, Chris Martin proved to be a bit of a wonder. The rock star who's made a life's work of walking on the mild side unleashed the beast within. Who would have guessed <laughs> he could imbue an acoustic version of Billie Jean, sung on a mini stage in the middle of the crowd, with double the paranoia of the original? I feel paranoia when I think of having to listen to his version of Billie Jean, but <laughs> that aside... Well, maybe having Jay-Z's support was where he got the idea for the awful piano ballad version of the Beastie Boys' Fight for Your oh, Right to Party, which... Ladies and gentlemen, you can find on YouTube. Watch it and just just cringe. Read it and weep. Read it yeah, and weep. It is. It is. Anyway, I mean, Coldplay. So Caroline Sullivan, she actually likes likes them. Fair enough. Perform. It sounds like they had some pretty awful. I mean, the whole crowd sing along of Yellow is just about. I was reading a Wikipedia article about like karaoke murders, and apparently someone was once murdered for singing Yellow <laughs> at a karaoke. <laughs> 
Anyway, just that there's a little yeah, yeah, yeah. vignette yeah. for you. Is that a fact? <laughs> yes, that is it's indeed a fact. It's a verifiable fact. <laughs> anyway. You gotta fight for your right to party. Going up forward to 2016, another article about... Well, it's actually about streaming, and streaming is how it's skewing the pop charts. It also mentions an odious artist, namely Drake, who's someone I don't have much time for. (laughs) But, so, the the whole concept of this article is is the fact that Drake has had a 15-week run at number one in the UK singles chart, which is not quite a record, but pretty Close. close. Yeah. And with his song One Dance. The problem is that it wasn't a best-selling single. It wasn't even in the top ten best-selling songs in Britain at the time when it was at the top of the charts. Mm-hmm. And that's because of the way that streaming metrics were being incorporated right. into right. Uh, the charts. Yeah. And it really skews mm-hmm. how artists can get discovered and reach the charts because mm-hmm. it counts repetitious streams. So if someone is listening to a song over and over and over again, on which... Loop. On loop, but also as part of playlists, popular playlists sure. will get rack up stream numbers much more quickly than someone you know who's a fan of something you know, going and listening to their to their work. Yeah, yeah. If you get onto one of those big playlists and you just get streamed a bunch, that doesn't necessarily mean that people love your music, right? It doesn't right. mean yeah, that yeah. someone's gone out and decided to buy your yeah. single. It, all it means is that they've heard it, mm. and so. So what you're saying is that this record that everybody hated is nonetheless the biggest record in streaming history. But not everyone hated it. But not everyone hated it. But I'm kidding. I mean, we slightly overstated the matter. (laughs) (laughs) Lisa Verico writes, More useful is to think of the woman reportedly sentenced to prison in 1993 for persistently playing Whitney Houston's I Will Always Love You at a deafening level and be thankful that most of us listen to music through headphones these days. Whether as downloads or CDs, sales count the number of people prepared to pay for a song. Streams count not people but plays, paid yeah. for or not. One dance remained at number one for so long because people who liked it simply couldn't stop playing it, not because more people liked it than any other song. I mean, th- th- this is part of a, a much bigger debate, which I'm sure we will have at some stage further down the line at greater length. But I'm particularly the Spotify model of the way in which people are paid. I mean, I love that band that we both like, we went to see at the Brixton Academy, Wolfpack, they financed a tour by putting out a silent album and asking all their fans... Just to play. Just yeah. to play it on yeah. loop on overnight. Loop. Yeah. Yeah. Until Spotify pulled it down. And they Brilliant. made something like 24, Brilliant they made about $24,000 doing yeah. that. Yes. Which basically paid for them to go on tour. Paid like, for the M&M's yeah. anyway. I, I, and there's the problem, let's say... I mean, I don't not listen to Beyoncé, but I hardly ever listen to Beyoncé. But she gets a disproportion of my Spotify payments because of the way Spotify skew things. Yeah. Whilst the slightly more, like, Harold Budd probably gets nothing. Yeah. And yet, I want yeah. him to get my money, you know? Yeah. Right. So, so, so th- there is a whole issue about... I mean, A, that they don't pay very well full stop, and B, how they pay, how they and measure. And, yeah, it really skews towards the big artists, yes. and this is something that That's Lisa right. again points out in her pieces. Like, the playlists, those big playlists, mm. are dominated by major label acts. And if you're sure. not a major label act, you're not going to get mm. onto one of those playlists, yeah. and you're not going to get discovered in the same yeah. way. And I think it is—it does represent a problem, uh-huh. not just for recompensation of, of artists, but also just for being able to just make n- it at all. There's you know? no doubt yeah. about that. There are some ways in which things are returning to a, sl- a slightly better place. For example, a lot of people don't even listen to Spotify. They do everything through YouTube. And now you can place an advertisement at the front of your official release of a video. You will get... Albeit, it's, it's, still, it's, still, it's, it's minuscule, but 
All this, all now starts to actually earn money from streaming, which they didn't really at all when this article mm, was yeah. written. It's, it's really true. I think the it's kinks tricky. are being ironed out, aren't they? There's a it's long slowly, way to go. Slowly, slowly. Very slowly. But it's, yeah. it's, um, it's, I mean, the it, genie is out of the bottle. Yeah. I mean, at reverse. least we aren't back in the days of Napster where no one was getting a penny for anything, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, but, but no, I'm, am I happy with the way it is? No. But yeah. it's, 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 it's an interesting conversation. Last piece I've got is a review of the latest album and possibly the last album by a tribe called Quest, ah. who emerged in 2017, 20, 2016, 2017. Mm. We got it from here, Thank You For Your Service, which is a really fantastic album, actually, to come from you know a hip-hop group that were big in the 90s and then sort yeah, of... Yeah. They didn't disappear, but they didn't really put out much sure. of, you know, for a good chunk of time. And Michael A. Gonzalez reviewing it for The Wire in January 2017, although it had just mm-hmm. come out in the end of 2016. Sounding like nothing else out there, distinct even from Tribe's previous work, We Got It From Here is political without being preachy, fun without being unintelligent, and next level out while being street corner down. Mm-hmm. A superb swan song. And Good. it really is a great album. I just wanted to mention it because it's, you know, if you like 90s hip-hop and yeah. you like Tribe West, it's different... It's fresh, it's current without, you know, being Excellent. totally No, I think you, you play a bit in the office, you know, I, say. It was, it was, it was, I really liked it. I also really like Michael Gonzalez's yes, writing. he's a great yes. writer. I've been really enjoying reading his yeah. stuff in, in The yeah. Wire. What about you, Barney? You don't need to ask me that because um, I, I prefer to leave the floor to you, gentlemen. You lying hound. <laughs> no, I mean, there were, there were a couple of great pieces. There is a, a retrospective piece on the life and death of Marvin Gaye by Stephen Dalton. Mm-hmm. In 2004, I thought I knew the story, but rereading this, there were, there were elements mm-hmm. of that tragedy that I wasn't aware of. It's it's a good piece, and then a, a lovely piece about Dr. John by Michael Simmons for Mojo. Yeah, in in New Orleans, so it's literally a kind of driving around yeah, 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 the yeah. Crescent City with Mac Rabinac and Mac pointing to the. the the Blue Cat Lounge used to be there, and what, there was, what, what took place there was the a woman who used to have sex with a zebra. But it wasn't the Blue a zebra. Cat Lounge. But it, but was, it wasn't it was a zebra. A mule, it, was, it, was a it was just a mule painted with stripes. <laughs> I don't it, know. Is that going to make the podcast? It's, make it's, the it's, probably it, not. Of course it will. Um, uh, <laughs> uh, I, 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 I thoroughly enjoyed the, the glance I had through that piece when I was digitising it for you. Yeah, I, I Simmons really is a great writer. I must say, you know, he's a real veteran, American veteran. I don't, I mean, I don't remember him writing for Mojo back in the era when I was mm. on staff at the magazine. But he's someone who, I think he, he worked for like High Times. He was an assistant editor at High right. Times. Yeah, and he's got that kind of sort of, you know, neo-beat, gonzo-ish flavour to his writing. So when he's writing about someone like Mac Rebernack, it's very poetic. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. This is a delightful piece about Good. the late, great Mac Rebernack. Nice. Shall we then... End the podcast here and go out with a clip. Yep, it's a, it's go out and have a cup of coffee. Or a stiff drink. Or a stiff drink. Well, in your um, case. <laughs> yeah, Lolita Holloway talking about just how she plays live, deals with the band, deals with her audience. So it's three disco dollies saying goodbye. Until <laughs> <laughs> next week when we almost certainly will have David Hepworth as our special guest. Fabulous. See you next week. Yeah, see, see you next week. Bye bye.
So do you change your act around depending on where you are? No, basically I get my songs the way I have them every night, but the way I talk, it makes it different. I, mean, I always talk before I sing a song. I see. So it, it have a tendency to change because sometimes I might not sing this song. A lot of, I sing a song the way I feel. The band just have to watch me. You know, I don't like write a list. No, right. I just sing the way I feel, or if I feel a slow song won't go here, I'll cut it off some sort of way, and the band knows what I'm talking about. We'll go put to something else. Oh, that's great. So it's, it's not a very rigid show. It's very flexible. In right. Fact, depending it depends on the, on the people. That's great. If the people are like this, you know, it depends on the people. You have to work, you have to look at the people and know their expressions and work from their expressions. Yeah. Right. Uh, because a lot of times you sing too many songs, people are like this. If you sing too many slow ones or fast ones, they are like this. So you have to, you have to watch your audience. Before they die, you switch and do something else. Right. Yeah, pacing is really important. That was Lolita Holloway in conversation with Cliff White in 1978, concluding this week's Rocks Back Pages podcast. The hosts were Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper Muris and Bowie. Many thanks to our Italian language consultant, Giacomo Bruzzo of Renoise Records. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews, at rocksbackpages.com. If you could get killed by the Gs, but you have to just steamroll to the, to, to, to the vowel, so it's like formaggio. Formaggio, formaggio. Formaggio.